Hola folks, bienvenidos, welcome back. This is Seminary for the Rest of Us. As always, I'm your host, Sabrina Reyes-Peters. This is episode 15, which is part two of my conversation with Dr. Nathan Cartagena, in which uh, we get to learn about Thomas Aquinas's psychology of fear. So if you're just now tuning in, pause, pause this, Go back, listen to part one, which was episode 14, uh, so you can get some context and get to know Dr. Cartagena a little bit better, and then return. So in this part two, we delve a little bit deeper into uh, fear, according to Aquinas, courage and perseverance, and Dr. Cartagena continues to brilliantly tie Aquinas into our current context, particularly in resisting oppressive structures and uh, living during a pandemic. Uh, he concludes with a word about Jesus and how since Jesus experienced the full range of human emotion, including fear and anxiety, we should feel free to experience those things as well. I hope you enjoy. I'm curious, uh, this is kind of off the cuff, but was there anything that uh, struck you as you were kind of going over those and like learning about those different categories, like the vices and then the virtues and like the sins? And Yes. Oh, this is a great question. Um, yeah, a lot of things struck me. So, so one of the things that struck me is that Thomas talks about fear in terms of what he calls apprehension or how we could put it this way. How do we perceive the world? And Thomas is so powerful here. He, he talks about how, how sheep will perceive wolves as threatening, even though, and this is to get a little bit into to metaphysics, they don't have a quality that they just wear on themselves. that says threatening or enemy. So they, they can perceive them as that, even though there isn't this particular kind of quality. And for Thomas, this is important because he thinks that when we perceive things or we construe things as threatening, yes, we are in some sense interacting with the things that, that are directly received in our perception. But this gets more into the, the categories of interpretation. So how are we interpreting those things that, that we're perceiving? How are we... Con Again, I'm going to use the word construing the things that we're perceiving so that, for example, one person can look at a black widow spider and be terrified. And another person can look at the exact same black widow spider because this person is enthralled with spiders and has this, you know, set a collection of spiders like joy. This is a good. This is wonderful. So one person looks at the same material, the same spider and goes, oh, my gosh, this is terrifying. This thing has venom. It can inflict pain. Ah. And another person's going, oh. This is so amazing. I wasn't expecting to see this beautiful creature here. And again, joy and experience of, of, this, of this deep sense of fulfillment. So Thomas's point is we, we have the same material object. But we, so what's, what serves as a difference? And he calls it a, a formal object. And so for him, this is, this is, this is going to get a, a little bit technical. But for him, it's, it's about, as it were, the ways, the, the descriptions under which we perceive something. So do we perceive this as threatening or non-threatening? 
And again, for him, it's not that these things just carry the thing as threatening. We're habituated. We're trained to see certain things as non-threatening and other things as threatening. So to me, this blows open the door for thinking in robust ways in particular about forms of racial fear. How do we get trained into seeing certain peoples and people groups as threatening and others as not? But Thomas is also going to say, how do you get trained into seeing certain things as useful and certain things as not useful? Um, so that was one of the most helpful things to me is, is Thomas's deep appreciation for how we apprehend and construe things under certain descriptions and then interact with them in light of those descriptions. And then I'll, I'll bring a, a, one other thing, and that is that, that Thomas has a, and his, his, his treatment of courage blew me away because Thomas argues that courage involves two actions, but one is primary. So he says, when you're looking at courageous actions, they can come in two, two, two main forms. One is gonna be a form of repelling or attacking. He says, but, and he connects that to the passion of daring because for him, courage uh, perfects slash moderates fear and daring fear and daring. So daring is this kind of passion we have where we see this, uh, this good that we want to go after, but there's an, there's an evil that impedes our ability to get after it. So what do we do anyway? We're just like, no, this is what I want. And we go forward ho. And that, that's going to be connected to, to forms of, uh, of repelling. But Thomas says, but that's not as much of what courage is going to be about as it is dealing with fears and especially fear of, of death. So for, for Thomas, and, and he's, he's focusing especially on physical death, but he opens it up to a whole range of kinds of death. So forms of ostracization, so forms of social exclusion, uh, the kinds of ways in which we're going to feel the things that are good and natural for us to have, now, now we can't have them. So Thomas says, actually, the greatest acts of courage are endurance, where you have these fears in front of you, because this these, these goods that you want are threatened. There are these evils that are, that are making it so that whatever it is that's, that's a good thing it, that, that you'd be after is, 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 jeopardy, is in jeopardy. He says, so, so you, you see extreme displays of courage when people endure in the face of those evils, those threatening, and for Thomas is an important category, they're threatening future evils. So it hasn't happened yet, but it's off in the distance and you still have to, you still have to press forward so Thomas argues that it ends up that because this is true, the greatest act of courage is martyrdom. He argues that the greatest act of courage is martyrdom because you're enduring all sorts of evils, knowing, okay, my, my life's going to be taken. And, and, and Thomas is going to argue that, that the desire to preserve one's life is a, is a good that God has, as it were, in some sense, infused into all creatures. So all creatures have this natural desire for, for self-preservation. But there are goods that Thomas is going to argue uh, that human beings need to be willing to lay down their lives for. And you can see that the, 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 the call, we might say, to lay down your life is coming. And there are all sorts of fears that would come with that. And especially as you're thinking about bearing witness to, to the triune God, you might end up having to give your, your life, as, as say, the, uh, the uh, El Salvadorian uh, Jesuit martyrs did or... Um, you think of somebody like Thomas More uh, being willing to die. We could go through many, many examples, of course. But, but Thomas is going to say, you know, that's, that's the fullest display of courage because you're maintaining your grip, as it were, on the greatest good, and that is your relationship to God. But as Thomas sees that, 
he says, this is one reason why we shouldn't think that there's only one virtue annexed to courage. Now, I, I should say, by the way, for Thomas, martyrdom is a, is a spirit-sustained act. He doesn't think that human beings are just naturally able to, 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 to become martyrs. He thinks, no, 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 the spirit is sustaining them in, in powerful ways. And, and I should note this uh, because Thomas has several categories of virtues. He has those that he thinks that any human being can acquire. And so these we could call the acquired virtues. And then he has those that, that he calls the infused virtues. So these are things that God gives us that uh, perfect and empower us um, throughout, throughout our lives so that we can um, grow into conformity to the image of Christ. But so Thomas is going to say in these moments where uh, Christians become martyrs for the sake of, uh, uh, of God, um, you have to see that they're going to be spirit empowered. But he's also going to say there are times where the call to martyrdom is something that you can perceive coming a long way off. And he says, in these cases, you don't just need courage, nor the spirit empowering a form of courage, which he's going to call a gift of courage, uh, the, a kind of uh, extra boost is what he calls it, of confidence in God's goodness, in God's ability to preserve you and, and loved ones, in God's ability to, to bring good out of certain forms of evil. But Thomas says you also need perseverance. And this is, this is such a helpful um, category. This, I, I want I to write a lot on a race-conscious conception of perseverance, because for Thomas, perseverance is the virtue that perfects fears of weariness or failure on account of something being delayed or taking a long time. So Thomas then unpacks that in two ways. When he's, he's thinking about the, the fears of weariness or failure on account of delay, he says there are two things that are connected to these kinds of fears. There are fears that come with the long duration. This is going to take a long time. Am I going to be able to do this? Can I, can I stay the course that long? And I remember when I first read about this, I was thinking about marriage and thinking about how many people give voice to their fears about getting married. Because like, I mean, can I really stay with this person the whole time? I don't know what this person's going to be like. They're appreciating the longevity of this commitment. Uh, but then he also talks about permanence. So there's on the one hand that something is you're you're trying to demonstrate uh, endurance and excellence over the long haul. But then there's also this reality that sometimes the evils that you're confronting aren't going anywhere anytime soon. And so Thomas says, in light of those distinctive forms of evil, things that are going to that are going to take a long time to confront, you're going to be confronting them perhaps the whole of your life, and the conditions might not really be changing. You might be seeing these systems of oppression the whole of your life. Now you've got to ask, like, how am I going to deal with this, the forms of weariness and concerns about failure? What if I don't do this right? He says, ah, now we don't just need courage and the ability to endure. We need another virtue. We need perseverance. And I think especially now, it's important that we, uh, as, we if, as we navigate our, our racist world, that we don't just champion some vision of wokeness, we might say, where it's like, look, there are evils out there. There are racist evils and sexist evils and so forth. Like, okay, there they are. Now you see them. That's helpful, but that's not enough. We have to be fortified to run the race well. And so I think one of the more important things we could be doing is asking, what are those practices we can engage that would help us to develop courage and perseverance in the face of the forms of, of, of fear that come? Because I'm, I'm largely persuaded forms of, for example, racism and, and sexism and the intersections of these things are going to be with, they're going to be with me until I'm six feet deep. I, I, you know, yes, they'll be changing some, sure, but, but the call is going to be to resist these things the whole of my life. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm actively asking how, 
is it that I can cultivate the kinds of courage and perseverance that I see Thomas um, beckoning Christians to pursue? That's, that's an, I'm checking to see if my mic's on. <laughs> uh, that's, that's an amazing uh, summary, not only of what Aquinas thinks, but how we can apply it. Um, because a lot of people don't see the value in just studying something like medieval philosophy or theology, <laughs> unless you can take something and then apply it to your own context, right? Um, so uh, you mentioned that Aquinas says the greatest form of courage uh, or endurance is martyrdom. Mm -hmm. And we do have uh, uh, Christians, not in the United States, not in our context, but um, in, in third world countries who have uh, um, died for their faith, but I'm wondering, uh, and you already started to mention this, how else could we take uh, this, this courage and apply it in our context? And you already mentioned uh, systems of oppression. And I was wondering right. if you could take it like uh, a step further, um, <clears throat> uh, like we're aware, but uh, what do we do next? Yeah. No, this is yeah, a great, great question. So uh, I want to clarify when Thomas talks about something as the greatest example of courage, he doesn't mean that it's the only example of, of courage. This is important clarification. So Thomas at times will pay attention to what we might call extreme cases. And does that, that doesn't necessarily mean um, bad cases, but he's, he's, he's asking, he'll, he'll call us to ask on, uh, he'll call us to consider what is the greatest display of, of this. So uh, one of the reasons I think for him that, that martyrdom is the, the for a Christian is the greatest display of courage. It's again, it's 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 this it's the the supreme way in which in this in this life you can you can demonstrate as an embodied creature full commitment to God, um, and you end up having crucifixed life as it were. So you're 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 dying and suffering in a way that's similar to to Christ dying and suffering. Not identical of course, but similar. But so so that's that's the extreme and the greatest form for him of, of courage. But Thomas talks about how courage helps us, and this I think is especially relevant in our case. Courage helps us to be willing to confront the threat of illness that we might care for the least of these. So, and this is such an important point because Thomas is inheriting, in part, Aristotle's ideas about courage, where Aristotle thinks the greatest display of courage comes on the battlefield, it comes with those that are duking it out, as we might say, soldiers or warriors for particular peoples. And Thomas says, okay, yes, that's, that's one area where we see courage, but it's not the only area, first off. And he also doesn't think it's the greatest area. Now he does end up he does end up playing with a metaphorically with the idea of battles, and so he talks about spiritual warfare, um, and he does talk about having personal battles and how this can lead into reflections on things like martyrdom, but also these internal senses of extreme strife, where you're going, okay, um, if I go and help this, let's say this this widow, or if I help these orphans over here. I am going to increase the likelihood that I might get COVID, for example. Well, Thomas is saying, okay, yeah, we, we of course have to be wise and discerning, but there also comes times where you have to say, the good of caring for my neighbor in this particular instance 
requires courage in the face of legitimate fear that I could get sick, that I might actually lose my life because this is what God's calling me to. So uh, to, to, your, to your point about like general uh, ways in which courage is going to mobilize us, I, I would encourage deep reflection on the connection between what I'm presenting as Thomas's view of courage and perseverance with Jesus's words in Matthew 25 about caring for the least of these, where Jesus self-identifies with with the, with the stranger, with, with, with the widow, with the orphan, with the person that is hungry, with the person that's lacking shelter, so the, the person that's homeless, with the, with the refugee. It's going to cost you all sorts of things to be with those that are the downtrodden. So the ones that we didn't just like, that didn't just fall on the ground, but now we're like stepping and imprinting their faces into the ground. Thomas is aware of that. And Thomas is saying, that's right. So a robust Christian conception of courage says, there are all sorts of fears that would come with caring for those people, especially during a pandemic. But part of a Christian commitment to courage is being able to look at those legitimate fears, not ignore them, not pretend, oh, COVID-19 is not anything serious. Oh, there's not a pandemic. Oh, I don't need to wear a mask. or anything. No, no, no. It's gonna be, you've got to look at these things, recognize that there are legitimate threats, but the call still will be, not for everybody in the same way, but for many, no, 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 you're to go and care for this, this homeless person this orphan, this widow, this person that's isolated, this person that's experiencing domestic abuse, this this person that is that is at 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 uh, his or her wits end because of the forms of, of isolation. Like no no no, I, I, yeah, there are going to be risks, but it's your call to go there. And and again, I want to stress that it's for Thomas as much as this is about in some sense a singular action. When you bring in his ideas about endurance, uh, courage, and perseverance. This is also over the long haul. So one of the things I think Thomas is helping us to see is we shouldn't just ask, how do I become the sort of person that would care in a one-off instance, let's say, uh, for, for people during a pandemic. He's instead going to say, how do I become the sort of person that throughout the whole of my life, I'm routinely exercising wisdom and courage to care for those that are suffering? Uh, knowing that's going to come with cost, knowing that, it, again, especially during a pandemic, that I can get sick. And that's why I love that Thomas explicitly talks about fears of illness and his treatment of courage. But also knowing that where these least, where, where the least of these are, where, where the pressed are, that's also where Christ is. That's also where Christ is calling you to go. So Thomas is, is calling us to, to one, of, one of the reasons this is funny, I'm smiling now, is because the, the Latin word for courage that, that we translate courage is fortitudo. So he's calling for us to become fortified. So that we can navigate the evils of this world, including the evil of illness. That that is some good stuff right there. Um, I really appreciate how you continue to tie this into our uh, immediate context. Uh, But I want to switch gears a little bit um, because I think you touched on it in the beginning. And I'm not really familiar with this concept, so I'm wondering if maybe you could go into it just a little bit more. Um, but uh, the pro-passion of Christ, uh, yeah. can you explain what that is and why that might be a bit problematic? Yeah, so great question. Uh, Thomas, here's one reason why it could, uh, it at least appears problematic. Thomas only attributes a pro-passion to one person, Jesus. And I, one of the questions I raise in my dissertation is, well, if only Jesus has it, is this a form of what's known as docetism? So the, the, uh, the heresy that, that, that more or less runs like this, it appears that Jesus is a human being, right. but really Jesus is not. 
So I pressed that question. And I'll say this, uh, many of the treatments of, uh, of Thomas's understanding of what it means for Christ to have a pro-passion are thin. And then some of those that are in scholarship more rigorous, uh, I, I think they, they miss out on trying to situate Thomas's understanding of what it means for Christ to be human while also divine and the whole range of his, of his uh, accounts of, of divinity and, uh, and accounts of uh, anthropology. So this is the shortest way of putting it. For, for Aquinas, what the phrase pro-passion gets at is that Christ truly does have a, a, a genuine human experience of fear, but it all stays properly regulated and submitted as it were to God in a way that's gonna be honoring to God. Now, getting into the complexities here is, is something I'm, I'm going to back off just a little bit because, so, so for example, one of the things that Thomas is going to argue is that uh, as human beings, as, um, as, 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 I'm going to put it, as what he calls a composite, so he thinks we're both, we're, we're, bo we're body, soul, uh, composite, he's going to say there are ways in which our passions can buck against, he's going to call it reason, he doesn't just mean the, the thoughts that you have in your, in your head, but they can buck against the, uh, the calls that God has for human beings to experience fear in, in certain ways. And, and Thomas is going to say, yeah, that doesn't happen. So for Thomas, uh, the fears that Christ experiences are always still in important ways um, r rightly responsive to Christ's will. And, and, and he thinks that Christ has two wills um, and Christ's reason which he's then going to say both Christ's will and Christ's reason are properly submitted to God and, and, and to, for, for Thomas, uh, divine law. So what, what he's getting at with the pro-passion is, is this, it's a technical term to capture the perfect ways in which Christ has actual fear. And for, for Thomas, this, these, these are fears you see manifested as Christ is on the way to Calvary. Uh, so Thomas is not one who thinks, Oh no, what we need to do again, this is a, unfortunately a common response by, by Christians. What, well, what, what the moral life involves is jettisoning all experience of emotions or passions. Thomas is like, no, no, no. It's about having them rightly. And Thomas is going to say, look at Christ. Christ is right to fear and sorrow death because it's coming. And especially the egregious, heinous form of death that is execution by crucifixion. He is right to be sweating drops of blood because of extreme anxiety that's coming. But Thomas is going to say, even in the face of all that, Christ is able to say to, 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 to the Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, let it pass. But if that's not, if that's not possible, if that's not your will, that, 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 that will be done. That will be done. And so there's an, ex, there's an experience of an extreme form of fear and anxiety, but still Christ displays the ability to, to bring this before God while also maintaining a submission to God. And it's not a stoic submission. It's not a submission that pretends, oh, I've just eradicated the, uh, the, the passions, they don't matter. No, it's an extreme form that still stays, uh, on Thomas's account, within the God-ordained harmony of um, passions, will, and reason that he thinks human beings are supposed to have. So that's what he's getting at. So it ends up that though it could look like it's docetism, it, it's not, it's just this technical term that's highlighting all of these complex realities that are coming in the, in the, in the distinct person of Christ. But I, I wanna say one more thing about this because I, 
I think too many of us haven't thought about the biblical presentation of the passions, if I'm going to use the medieval term here, that Christ experiences. Christ has sorrow, deep sorrow. Christ has fear. And one of the forms is anxiety. Christ has joy. You see that, for example, when he's interacting with some of his disciples. Christ has anger. Christ has righteous indignation. You see a whole display of human passions. And Thomas is saying, pay attention to that. What you don't see is Christ saying, let's all sit here and, and as it were, squash all of the uh, all human affectivity, because that's what it means to be to be godly. No, it's let's have righteous anger, but without sinning. Let's have godly fear, but without sinning. Let's have deep sorrow because some things are so evil. If you're not sorrowing over them, Thomas is going to say something's wrong. In fact, Thomas goes this way. He says, those that are completely fearless don't love well. And I think it's just brilliant because Thomas's point is you fear those things that threaten your loves, mm. whether it's love of yourself or love of others. And, and so Thomas, when he's looking at Christ, he thinks that this is a demonstration of, of Christ rightly, when Christ is uh, on the way to Calvary, Christ rightly caring for uh, his, his self in a way that's unique to how he can do it. But as much as Christ is, is rightly fearful about the death that's, that's coming, Christ has courage and perseverance and is ultimately able to provide satisfaction. But that provision of satisfaction, again, remember, Thomas is going to stress that, that Christ's uh, Christ atoning act, actions both serve to deal with sin. He goes with a satisfaction account, but also provide instruction. So I think that there are probably some who are here who, who need to know, it's, you know it, it, if you're feeling nervous when you go out and you're going to go shopping and, and, you, and you're fearful, that's okay. You don't have Absolutely. to say, let me buck up and pretend that there's not a pandemic going. No, Thomas is going to say, no, that, that's, that's lunacy. <laughs> that's, a, that's a problem. And I'm saying this because so many pastors and priests are abusing the flock, are abusing their congregants, abusing their parishioners by telling them, no, if you have any fear, you're not trusting the sovereignty of God. Thomas is going to say, Christ had fear, and Christ is the greatest truster of the Father and the Spirit this world is ever going to have. So we, have, we need these levels of nuance, the, the, the distinctions between sinful forms of fear and non-sinful forms of fear, so that we can navigate. And, and I know this is one of the, 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 the themes that's come up in our conversation, Armana, is, is well, how, how will some of Thomas's teachings relate to us today? Again, he's one that's a churchman. He loves the church. He cares deeply for the flock. He wants people to be able to experience righteous sorrow, righteous anger, righteous fear, and not constantly wonder if their experience of fear if any kind, just proves that they don't really believe God, they don't really trust God, that, that something's wrong with their commitments to providence. No, 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 no. Thomas is going to say, "There's no, you can't have that. He's going to say, and last example, he's, especially I think this is depressing. He's going to say, when Lazarus dies, Jesus sorrows. He cries. That's a fitting response. Now, of course, there can be other things that can accompany that. But Thomas is going to say, what God's not calling you to do is to claim that the evil of death isn't an evil. And then act as if it's not. Or the threatening forms of, 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 of COVID-19 aren't in fact threatening. Yeah, no, those are the sorts of things that can kill you. And unfortunately, we have a, a president today that's, that's encouraging people to act like, no, it's not a threat at all. Right? It, it, this, Thomas is going to say, no, 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 no. Take threats seriously. Of course, don't pretend that something is a threat when it's not. But if it is in fact a genuine threat, for you not to perceive it as a threat actually speaks to malformation on your part. 
I appreciate this reminder, uh, this super important reminder that Jesus was, you know, truly human and that he experienced the range of human emotion. And it's okay for us to also experience the the range of human emotion. And there's nothing sinful about that. Um, Right. Yeah, uh, that's probably like a whole nother podcast series in there. (laughs) But but I am curious if somebody wanted to learn more um, after listening to our conversation, Mm. um, but they're not really like a professional theologian or philosopher or anything. Uh, what might you recommend for them to learn more about Thomas? Great question. So I highly recommend the following book. It's by a Thomas Aquinas scholar I respect. His name is Mark D. Jordan. He teaches it at Harvard Divinity. He had been at Notre Dame for a long time. But the book is called Teaching Bodies. And I'll put it up for anybody that can see. But it's Teaching Bodies, Moral Formation in the Summa of Thomas Aquinas. I think this is the place to start. In fact, um, though I am all for primary texts, I think if you're not familiar with Thomas Aquinas, don't just launch into Aquinas. I'd begin with this book. I'd begin with with Jordan's book, Teaching Bodies, so that you'll get a sense of what Thomas is up to. Uh, Jordan's going to help to walk you through passages of the Summa that that will serve as hooks later on when you go into to to read Thomas. So I I know not everybody's going to be able to see this, but behind me, there's what we might call the blue whale. That's, that's just some, that's just yeah. some of my, uh, my Aquinas texts. So that those are, those are books that have uh, the Latin uh, on one column and, and, an, and an English translation, another. But Thomas has written extensively. And especially if you're not used to what's known as the medieval disputational style. So this kind of what I call a dance of appearances. So Thomas will say, well, it looks like an answer to this question is this, but wait, it could be something else. And then Thomas gives you his, his answer. If you're not used to that, it can be really disorienting. Now, I actually think that this is a brilliant way to help people to cultivate wisdom, but it takes time to get into the practice of really looking at multiple options, realizing that it's a genuine question. Is it A or is it not A? And then hearing somebody like Thomas, who's a committed teacher saying, I say this should be said this way. So before you jump into all that yet, Mark D. Jordan's book, it's with Fordham University Press, uh, Teaching Bodies, Moral Formation, and the Summa of Thomas Aquinas. Excellent. Um, I'll put that in the show notes too uh, for people to reference. And on that note, if people are listening to this and they're like, wow, where can I find more of Dr. Nathan's work? <laughs> where, can, where, where can they connect with you if you are open to that? Yes. No. So, so great question. Um, first, if, if they're interested in, in reading uh, some of my my efforts to to meditate on what it looks like to grow in, in godliness, to pursue sanctification in a racialized world. I've, I've posted and will continue to post blogs on, on a website. And it's my first name and last name. So Nathan uh, and then Cartagena, C-A-R-T-A-G-E-N-A.com. Um, the, the handle for that is also Mestizo Meditations, you know, where, where as I'd mentioned at our start, I'm, I'm thinking about what it means to be multiracialized. And then if you're interested, uh, I've, I've been trying to bear witness on, on Twitter <laughs> or, since I started a Twitter account uh, back in July. And, and my, my, my Twitter handle is Mestizo Meditations. And there, again, you're going to find me talk about 
everything from Thomas Aquinas' psychology of fear to what it looks like to take uh, seriously Kimberly Crenshaw's account of intersectionality, et cetera, et cetera. And if I may, I, I want to I want to close uh, this point about where you could find more by by noting this. Um, my I'm striving to be a churchman, as I mentioned at our beginning, is retrieving church teachings from the past while addressing and therefore also learning from contemporary uh, issues and, and scholars. So I'm, I'm trying to do what I think in some sense Thomas was doing. Take, take the scriptures seriously, take these range of voices seriously, and do your best to make sense of, of what's, what's going on. So if you are interested in somebody that's trying to do that, you can see me stumbling along <laughs> as long as the Lord gives me breath. Um, but yeah, I want to make sure too. Uh, I say, uh, Hermana, thank you again so much for having me. It's a joy to be on your podcast. I hope that our reflections on Aquinas' psychology of fear are, are a blessing to, to, to many, and especially his his call to grow in courage and perseverance and recognize, as, as you beautifully said, that Christ's actions give us great encouragement as we see him demonstrating sorrow, anger, um, fear, etc. Yeah, well, if nobody else got anything, I got a lot out of this conversation. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for listening to Seminary for the Rest of Us. Really grateful for your support. If you want to stay updated, go to seminary.show. If you have any questions, any questions at all, particularly related to theological or biblical studies, make sure to send them to seminary.show at gmail.com. And if you're lucky, I will answer them with the help of my guest on the show. There are lots of ways to stay connected, so make sure you check out all of the social media handles in the show notes, as well as a way to support us financially if you feel led. And also make sure to give us a rating if you're on Apple Podcasts. That's a quick, easy, and free way to support this tiny project and boost our visibility. Thanks again and catch you next time.